Kids, raise your hand if your parents ever have to tell you to clean your room. All right. Don't they always seem to ask you right in the middle of when you're playing a game, you're doing something exciting or fun? They do it on purpose. <laughs> not, not really. Um, parents do this for a few reasons. One, it teaches you discipline. It's good hygiene. But also, it benefits everybody in the house when things are in order. I like things in order. I have an order to my clothes, to my shoes. I have an order to my computer files. I like things in order. You probably like things in order, although they might look different than the way I would order things because there are some things that people in my family say, well, that doesn't look like it's in order, but it's in my order. I know what it's supposed to look like. But you probably have things in order in your own life. Maybe even the apps on your phone are in a certain order and you know exactly where you want to go without even looking. All of us appreciate order. I mean, can you imagine driving without stop signs or lights or signals or some kind of order on which side of the road that you're going to drive on? Have you ever been into a store and the clothes are randomly put on a rack that are not ordered by size? Forget it. I'm not shopping at this place. <laughs> order is important. And that's especially true in the church. In verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul starts out really with the, a concluding statement. What then, brothers or brothers and sisters? So he's wrapping up his instructions about questions and struggles that the Corinthian believers were having about spiritual things, particularly gifts given by the Spirit. And so far, we've been looking at, in this chapter, what a spiritual church looks like. The church of Jesus Christ is spiritual in nature, and we are to be a spiritual church. What makes a church spiritual? Over the last few weeks, we've said that a spiritual church is active, active in pursuing love, Verse number one, and striving to build others up. A spiritual church is maturing in its thinking. We are maturing in our thinking about what the church is, how we are to be a part of it, how we are to be serving in it, and what God is doing in and through his people. And this morning, we will look at the last of these points. A spiritual church is an orderly church. A spiritual church submits to the biblical order that God has given. I mean, it only makes sense that a, a God who has taken spiritually dead people, that's you and I, if we are believers in Christ, he takes us as spiritually dead people, makes us into a spiritual people for himself, that he would then care enough to give instructions for his spiritual people in how they are to live in waiting for his return. So as we discuss order this morning, it's all going to center around this word participation. We're going to look at four aspects of participation that are going to guide our understanding of what an orderly church looks like. Four aspects of participation to guide our understanding of what an orderly church looks like. Number one, number one, member participation. 
You see in verse 26, we already looked at what then, brothers? So what's the conclusion of all that I've been saying? When you come together. So very clearly, we have instructions on the, the worship gathering. When you're coming together for worship. If you remember in chapter 11 and verse 17, Paul has already used this phrase once. But he says, when you come together, it is not for the better, but it is actually for the worse. I think about that statement. The Corinthian church was so dysfunctional and in disunity that Paul says, when you gather together, it's actually for your detriment, not for your encouragement and improvement. And now, in chapter 14, he says, when you come together, I want to give you instructions that, you can get, that will help you gather for your benefit, for the benefit of all. And look at what he leads with. Each one. Every member is a participant or, or should be a participant. And he says participation happens in different ways. Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Okay, And if, if you want to hear more about what it means to be one body with many members, you can go back and listen to, to Adam's sermons from chapter 12. But here in our text... Let's look at these different gifts given by the Spirit. He says each one has a hymn. A hymn is a teaching set to music. We sang some hymns this morning. As we gather for worship, we gather to sing. We sing to God. We, we, I think most of us get that. We're here to worship God. But did you know in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says that you also sing, you are teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So you're not just singing to God, you're singing to one another. You're teaching one another as you sing. As you sing out or as you don't sing out, you are letting those around you know, hey, I agree with these truths that are that are on the screen, okay, that were written down, that we can sing as a congregation, or I don't agree, so therefore I'm not going to sing. As we choose songs for our worship services, we, we don't sing just any song that sounds good. That's not what, hey, that's a catchy tune, let's, let's go for that one. No, we're, we're concerned about the lyrics. What are the lyrics teaching us? What are the words to this hymn teaching us? Because we want to make sure that while God is the primary audience, those around us are the secondary audience. And then, and then really, it's, it's about us. So our singing is not, boy, this, this makes me real, feel really good, but this is worshiping God and instructing others. So, each one has a hymn, and perhaps some of you are gifted even in hymn writing. That's where most of the songs that we sing come from, people within other churches that write these songs. But he says each one then has a lesson, and the word here is simply a, a teaching or a doctrine, obviously not in song format. And this is, this is the foundation upon which everything is built. Okay, the problem the problems in Corinth weren't primarily because they didn't have instructions on, on just simple how-to things in life. They didn't have a how-to manual, but they lacked biblical doctrine. If they would have, have had a better foundation of, of biblical doctrine, here what Paul has been addressing about the spiritual things, about what a church was really all about, they would have been far better off. And I've said this before, 
And I think Adam has said it before. We've said it in different ways. Any practical life instruction must be grounded in biblical doctrine. That is spirit-inspired teaching of God. Hymns, lessons, revelation. The word means uncovering. So this is someone who's been given uh, wisdom in uncovering the mysteries of the gospel and its future end. And then a tongue or interpretation, and we went into that in detail two weeks ago. These are some of the gifts given by the Spirit. But notice what it says. Once again, you have this phrase, let all things be done for building up. Each member is to be a participant in the spiritual building up of the body of Christ. On a sports team, you have starters and you have be- the bench. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? The starters are in the game a lot. And then you have people that are on the bench, sometimes players that are known as bench warmers. A bench warmer doesn't get the, into the game often. They are busy warming the bench, keeping it warm. But they are an important part of the team. You may not realize it. And if you have ever been in that position or you are in that position now, you may not, you realize you don't, these, these players don't get the limelight. They don't get the praise. They don't get like, wow, look how many points they scored or how many hits they have or whatever the case might be. But they are there. They are there for the daily grinds of practice, battling against the starters. They're sharpening the skills of the other players. They are there at the, at the games, on the sidelines, cheering and encouraging and, off, and sometimes coaching. Hey, watch out! What, watch what they're doing here. You can do better at doing this. They're, they're helping the team. They have a prominent role, even if they're not getting the limelight. You see, it's not about what kind of player you are or what kind of giftedness you have. It's about whether you are a player on the team whether you're contributing to the strengthening of the team. Because the problems come when we are content to be spectators. I'll let let them do that. You know, there's a, I don't know how accurate it is anymore because I feel like it's been going around for decades. But like, you know, the 20% of the people do 80% of the work in a a church. I don't know how how true that is. across the board, or even in our church, but some of us are just content to be spectators. Maybe this morning you think, well, well, Dennis, I don't want to be a spectator. I want to contribute, contribute, but sometimes I don't know how. I I don't know what to do. I don't feel like I'm gifted like other people are gifted. And that's fine, because each of us are given different gifts. But let me just say two things. One, be willing, okay, this is what you're struggling with. Be willing to be used however God would use. Secondly, and I'm going to go back to uh, the first of these sermons in 1 Corinthians 4, pursue God actively. Because if you pursue Him with everything that you have, He will place things on your heart and your mind that will serve in building up His people. You see, the bench work in a church, if I can phrase it like that, It looks like the encouraging words spoken to another member. It looks like the Bible verse shared with another member who is struggling 
struggling with such circumstances in life, with sin in life. It looks like prayer for other members of their body, for their spiritual health, for their marriages, for their parenting, for their, the peer pressure that they face at schools. If you consider yourself on the team, you gather with the intention of knowing that you're a participant. When we gather this morning, we don't just come and show up and say, boy, I hope, I hope it's good today. No, how can I serve the spiritual building up of this body? You might never set a foot up on the front here. And you might say, great, I don't want to do that. But you're going to be talking to one another afterwards and beforehand and in between during the week is your intent to build others up. There will be times that you and I come for worship when we may not really feel like it. You ever have those Sundays? I, I've had, I have them, okay? E- even as a pastor, I don't really feel like coming today. I'm not just coming for me. And yes, we're commanded of the Lord to come and worship Him, but here, Paul says, you're commanded to come for the good and benefit of others. We all have our bad days, and so please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying here that we should come and play the hypocrite and pretend. Yeah, all right, kids, put on the smiling face. We pulled into the parking lot. It's not, not what I'm saying. Because I, I hear from unchurched people all the time. I, I don't really like the church because it just seems like there's a bunch of hypocrites and, and, and nobody's genuine. I don't know if you've ever heard that. But I'm like, yeah, well, I, I, I would agree. I wouldn't want to come to a church and that's what it feels like all the time. And no doubt, there, there are some here this morning that are that play the role of hypocrite very well. As in any church, you say enough things to enough people so that everyone says, wow, what a, what a good guy. What a, what a great person. And all the while, not one spiritual instruction is ever given for the building of the body. Participation as Paul begins to lay out here, means getting serious about how the Spirit of God can be at work in you for the spiritual building up of His church. Listen, I I, I understand that everyone's got different personalities and this is going to work itself out in different ways and not everyone's called to the same giftedness. But we don't read verse 26. Here's what we don't read. When you come together, like each extrovert has a hymn or a lesson or whatever the case might be. No, it's each one of us. Seniors, couples, singles, teens, children. We are all commanded to participate in some way in the way that God has gifted us for the building up of his church. And naturally, this could get rather chaotic Okay, which is why Paul gives some rules in verses 27 to 33. So member participation, number one. Number two, reflective participation. Whatever participation looked like in the church of Corinth, it was confusion. It was, it was a bit chaotic. 
But I want to start out in verse 33 because verse 33 is the reason why he gives the rules that we'll look, like, we'll, we'll, we'll look at. Notice what verse 33 says. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So the reason Paul is laying out these rules of instruction for worship is because of the character of God. A church is to reflect the character of God. Paul has already told us that we're to reflect God's character of love. Chapter 13 lays that out very well. In other words, if this is what God is like and God is at work in you, then these things should be demonstrated in the church. These should be apparent. So here Paul says, God is not a God of confusion, but he is one of peace. This is part of God who God is. So the church is a people of peace, not of confusion, because God is a God of peace, and this should be evident as we gather together. It shouldn't be chaos and confusion. It should be peaceful and orderly and loving. And so to prevent confusion, God gives rules about gifts. And now he's been comparing tongues and prophecy throughout this whole chapter. And this continues into chapter, or verse 27 uh, through, uh, through the end of the chapter here. But notice what verse 27 says. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, or at the, at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. So if someone is going to speak in a tongue, this should only happen two or three times in a service, one at a time, and then you need an interpreter. And he reiterates that in verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent, that word's going to come up a couple other times, in church, and speak to himself and to God. So if you don't have an interpreter, you are to remain silent and speak to themselves and God. Pretty straightforward, I think. So that, that instruction is going to, to, to um, govern any, any approach that you have to what tongues is supposed to be and what role it plays in the church today. That's, that's the order that we, we should have there. Verses 29 and 30, now Paul turns his attention to prophecy. And once again, verse 29, he says, two or three, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. That's an important phrase. Verse 30, and if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. So once again, we have the rules. Two or three are to speak, one at a time, not just one talking over the other. And what's the goal? Verse 31, so that all may learn. That is, gain information, gain instruction. What we looked at a couple weeks ago, Paul's saying you want to engage the minds in our maturing and understanding of spiritual truths and that they would be encouraged, that all would be encouraged. The gift as we, I mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. The gift itself, which here is prophecy, isn't the focus. Like, man, if you, could, if you could have this gift, like it's all about the gift. 
but instead it's the effect that the gift is having on the body. That's Paul's main concern. That's his main focus. Your gifts should be serving to building up the body. No matter what the gift is, don't get focused on the gift. Be focused on the effect that it's having on your brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll notice what he says, though, about prophecy. He, I, I mentioned the phrase at the end of verse 29, let the others weigh what is said. And then in verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. So the gatherings then are not these chaotic talkings over each other in speaking in tongues. It's not a prophetic free-for-all like Whoever wants to talk, let's, let's talk and we accept any word of prophecy that comes. No, he says, these are all subject to the other, those that have this gift of prophecy and to the prophets. And I think at some extent he's even saying to the prophets of old in the Old Testament, what they would have had for the scriptures. You are subject to the prophets. So tongues are not going uninterpreted and prophecy is not going unchecked. When you hear a sermon from this pulpit on a Sunday, check it with Scripture. Don't just take our word for it. Is what is being said true? I think this this can be some of the strength and value of sermon-based questions during our small group time. We can discuss these things. Is what is being said found in the scriptures. So we have these guidelines for worship. As we gather, we gather in peace and order to worship the God who has brought peace. This month we celebrate Christmas. I'm excited. Anybody not have their Christmas tree up? I'm going to put some people on the spot. Man, next week, Christmas trees better be up. We celebrate Christmas, and what did the angels proclaim? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Peace between God and man, peace between our fellow man. And how does this peace come? It comes through the cross. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ, the peace we need is peace with God because we are natural born enemies to God. We need to be reconciled and brought, brought back into relationship with God. Romans 5.10 in that same chapter of Romans, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by what? The death of his son. And so it's through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we are brought into relationship with God, brought into his family, the church. And this church, as Paul is explaining to the Corinthians and to us, now displays his character and his glory to the world. So so while the effect of a self-focused, unruly worship is, is a detriment to the body, we're concerned about our, our, our internal health. It's also a detriment to our witness. It's a sad thing when a church's witness is ruined because of internal dysfunction. When, the, when you ask those in the community, what do you think about that church? And 
the perception is negative. And CBC, listen, the warnings to the Corinthians should ring in our ears as well because we are only one self-focused issue away from spiritual disunity. We must strive to maintain unity in the variety of gifts that God has given his church. We want a church that is full of participants who reflect the character of God as we uphold spiritual truths. And if we fail to reflect God's character, it doesn't matter what doctrines we hold. It doesn't matter what side of the issue we fall on, what gift we're given, we have failed. We must reflect the character of our spiritual father. The third area of participation And for some of you, you say, this is the one I've been waiting for. Silent participation. Let me read these verses. Verses 33b, the second part of that verse, through verse 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I probably don't have to say this, but we are now into one of the more challenging verses of this book. In all the churches, Paul says there are situations where women should be silent participants within the congregation. This is the third time that he's used the word silent in these verses. He used it in verse 28, he uses it in verse 30, and now he uses it here. And here he's speaking about uh, women, in reference to women. And I want to be careful here. And some of you are saying, you better be careful here. <laughs> but, but I want to be careful here, not, not out of fear of man, but to be faithful to what God's intent was in writing this. And and to be careful to say all things in love. And just a side note, there there are going to be side issues where the Bible and culture clash. And as a church, as individual Christians, we, we need to be willing and ready to stand up for those things that are clearly taught in God's Word. While at the same time, we show love and we do it in a way that that strives to build up peace. God has much to say about gender roles. He created gender, so that kind of makes sense. He designed both men and women uniquely for his glory. And you come to verse 34, and it uses some pretty strong, hard language. Keep silent, not permitted to speak, be in submission, And now some will come to this passage and they're just going to paint Paul as a chauvinist. This is is Paul's idea. He he just had this perception of women. However, that's really not going to work if we're going to be honest with the text. Because notice what Paul says. This instruction is based on the law going back to the Old Testament. So this is not just Paul's idea that he came up with. But it's from God. Also, I, I want to use verse 35 for just a moment to, to defend Paul just a little bit more. Notice the word learn. 
If there, if there is anything they, that is the women of the church of Corinth, desire to learn. And this may not mean much to 21st century Americans. But in the first century, women were not permitted to learn at all. In fact, the Jewish people said that for women to learn, it was sin. There were no schools for women. Education, whether it was religious or secular, was, was for men only. But the church was different. Paul invited women to learn, both in verse 35 and verse 31. He says, what is the purpose of this prophecy and the order of the worship? So that all may learn. It's not just talking about men, but men and women. Notice also the word shameful at the end of verse 35. It is shameful for a woman to speak in church. This is the same word used in chapter 11 and verse number 5, talking about a woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. It is a dishonor to her. Dishonor is the same word here, shameful. It is shameful to her to do this. Why do I bring that word up? Because it shows that Paul isn't devaluing women, in fact, values women, and wants them to be honored and built up. Now, it's clear, Paul makes makes it clear to us that God has given men and women separate roles, both within the, the home and within the church, but the charge of chauvinist just really doesn't stick when you start seeing his heart behind all these things. So what does Paul mean that women are to keep silent? Well, let's start out talking about what he, we know he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that women are not to speak at all when the church is gathered or that they aren't supposed to be participants in, in worship. As Paul has been talking about, I want you all to speak in tongues or each one has a hymn, there's no qualifying statements there. He's talking to both men and women. I mentioned chapter 11, verse number 5. Paul recognizes that women will pray and prophesy. So we have a bit of a a mystery here. Some are going to use this text to argue that women are not to function as pastors or elders. This is talking about teaching. I'm not sure that's the best use for that. But, but let, me, let me deviate on that thought for just a moment because there are a number of people that, that do use this text as, as kind of a proof text. Women should not be pastors, elders. It's the same role, just a different name. They're not, they're not to be elders. But in, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul gives instructions to a young pastor named Timothy regarding the same issue, the orderliness of worship. And here's what he says in verses 11 and 12. Let a, whim, let, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Does that sound like the same thing we're reading in 1 Corinthians? Yeah, same exact words, actually. The word quietly is silent, and then you have the word submissive. So you got very similar to 1 Corinthians. But now in Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul adds she is not permitted to teach or exercise authority over a man. And Paul here is not just talking about speaking in general, but teaching and preaching in an authoritative way. And we're not going to take the time to go more into 1 Timothy 2, but Paul then grounds this in the law, in the order of creation, and the first sin of Adam and Eve. 
You can jot this down as a cross-reference text and read it afterwards if you want. But what is clear, by the time you get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, that the role of pastor-elder is reserved for men. This is not an issue of inequality, but function and roles. So while I agree with the, that overall argument that this role is reserved as God has given for men, here in 1 Corinthians 14, although Paul uses very similar language, he does not address the issue of women teaching. Rather, the issue of women learning. And I struggle with this for weeks and how to understand this text. Because you have all this teaching language happening and then it's like, where does this, like, I, don't, I, I know how people use this for a text for women teaching because you're like, well, now it's women being silent regarding teaching. But you don't see that language in 1 Corinthians 14. And so I want to credit some commentators with help, helping me think through this. Here's, what, here's what's happening, at least how I can best piece it together. You have all this teaching, prophecy, hymns, uh, revelation, interpretation of tongues and tongue speaking. All this is going on in the worship gathering. And the Christian church has elevated women to have an opportunity to learn. I mean, culturally speaking. And so the women have found this new sense of freedom and value within the body of Christ. I mean, put yourself in that context. You're barred from all of this. You're not, you're just kind of like, you're seen and not heard, and now you're a part of this church where all are one in Christ, and you can learn, and you're invited to learn, and you're invited to participate in different ways, and you have this value in the body of Christ. And so then, whatever the women in Corinth were doing, and presumably maybe now this is happening in some of the other churches because Paul gives that instruction to Timothy. And look, speculations range about, okay, what were they doing? Were, were, were these uh, random interruptions where they were just calling out? Uh, were they, at the time, they would have men and women sit on different sides? So were they talking among the other? And I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but unlearned women, like in the middle of the teaching, like, what does that mean? What is it? And it was causing a commotion. Were they asking uh, other men who weren't their husbands, including maybe the, the, the prophets that were prophesying, uh, which would have been a huge cultural issue um, at that time, just in, culturally inappropriate to do that. And maybe that's why he says, ask your own husbands at home. Or maybe somehow they were simply undermining God's design for gender roles and, and it was causing this under, undermining of the authority of, of the, the men to lead within the church, whatever they were doing, and those are, that's a brief, like, here's some of the thoughts that people have thrown out there as far as what was happening, because we're just not, we're not told much. But whatever they were doing, it was creating disorder within the body. And they were to stop and live in submission. And I don't know if that answers questions or creates more questions, and we're happy to talk about those things later, but the issue of submission is not just singled out for women. Paul continues to drill down on this idea of submission 
for the rest of the chapter. And so this is in no way like putting extra things on women. Paul now is going to turn his sights to to really everyone and say, you are to live in submission. And that is our final point, submissive participation. It's not just the women who are to submit. In verse 36, Paul is going to use two rhetorical questions to make his point. Because no doubt, maybe like is happening here this morning, there are some within Corinth that that were saying, man, I don't like this teaching, especially this part here about women. I, I don't like this stuff. I don't like this stuff about tongues and all this order and what we're supposed to do. What Paul says in verse 36 or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? In other words, do you have a corner on the truth? Are, are you able to make up whatever fits your preferences? No, you are under the authority of God's word. This is where we get our marching orders. As a church, it's from this book that we find all instruction for for life and for how we conduct ourselves as a church. Verse 37 and 38, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or you think you're spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing. Uh, Writing to you, sorry, I didn't mean to pause there. But acknowledge that they are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, that these are a command of the Lord, he is not recognized. So so if if you really are a prophet, if you really are spiritual, then you're going to acknowledge that Paul says that what I am writing to you is from the Lord. This is not my own thoughts. These are not my preferences. And so Paul, what is he really doing? Asking them to evaluate the things that he's saying based on Scripture, which is why over and over he says, as it is written in the law, and he goes back to that. Because the Scriptures are taken as a whole. And it's a pretty strong indictment here. Basically, Paul is saying, don't call yourself spiritual if you are willing to live in contradiction to the Word of God. If you don't recognize this, you are not recognized as a prophet, as a teacher. And I I think quite possibly, Paul means here, even a believer. The Spirit of God is not within you. Now we come to Paul's final words on this matter. Verses 39 and 40. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So by the time Paul gets to the end of his argument about spiritual things and comparing prophecy and tongues, he says very plainly, not just earnestly desire the higher gifts or the spiritual, no, earnestly desire to prophesy. Because it is what builds up the church the most. But don't become a legalist and forbid speaking in tongues. Allow that. However, remember that in all of your worship, it should be done decently and in order. 
Brothers and sisters, we desire to do all things according to this book. We don't want to leave anything out of this book. We don't want to add anything to this book. We want this to be the foundation for all that we do. This guides our worship, it guides our discipleship, it guides our evangelism, and anything else in between comes from God's Word. We don't want to add the weight of a moral code to this book that is not there. As pastors, we strive for this in our teaching. What has the Lord said and what has He not said? We want you to hold us accountable to this. It's it's very easy even to let our preferences carry more weight than what God's Word actually gives or says. I failed in this at times. I wrestle with this at times. And constantly, we as a church, we as individuals, must be reminded that we submit to King Jesus. Not to man-made standards, not to our own preferences. We submit to King Jesus. And one day we will stand before Him and Him alone, and we will give an account of our lives. Your pastors will give an account for how they have led this congregation. All around us as a church, we have pressures to submit to things other than our Lord. But this is His church, and He's called us out to live as His spiritual people, to live a spiritual life in submission to Him. And we can only have one master. And so it is to Him that we submit. This doesn't mean that we understand everything. A dad might tell his child, don't play in the street. And the child may or may not understand why they shouldn't play in the street. But the child knows, my dad loves me. He wouldn't tell me to do things that are harmful for me. I'm going to submit and I'm going to obey and not play in the street. And we all know why you don't play in the streets for your own protection. And I think sometimes in the same way, maybe some of the issues that we even talked about this morning, God, I don't really understand this, but I'm willing to submit and be and strive to do what you've called me to do, knowing that you are a loving Heavenly Father that is not calling me to do things that are a detriment to me, but are actually for my building up, built by my own spiritual building up and the spiritual building up of this church. This book, you have your own, is the command of the Lord. And there are many people who claim the name Christian, but reject the teachings of the Bible. This cannot be. Being a Christian means that Jesus is both Savior and Lord of your life. Each of us has a king that is on the throne of our heart. This morning, there is a king sitting on the throne of our heart, of our lives. Can I just ask you, who who is your king? Ultimately, it's only going to boil down to God or self. But kids, teens, 
You're here at a church in worship at a very young age. Maybe you've made a, you've had, had a time in your life, you made a prayer of salvation, and that, that is great, but is Jesus Lord of your life? Adults, maybe you've attended church for decades. You can't think of a time when you haven't been in church. You've always known yourself and called yourself a Christian. But is Jesus Lord of your life? If anyone does not recognize Jesus as Lord, he is not recognized. The word recognize there is really the word knowledge. If you do not know this to be true, then you are not known and you have no knowledge. And so you might be in the church and you might be doing the right things and you might have spiritual gifts, but it's just a game. It's just a religion. There's no spiritual relationship. Let me urge you, make Jesus Lord today. Hopefully by the time we got to the end of this passage, you have seen that order in worship benefits all. A spiritual church submits to the biblical order that God has given. All members are participants in the spiritual building up of this church. This participation is reflecting the character of our God in peace and love. And God has given each a role, and we are to live in submission to him and how he has designed his church to function. So you want to be spiritual. Be active in your pursuit of Christ. Be maturing in your thinking regarding the church and spiritual things, and be orderly in your worship as the Lord has commanded.